Well, this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus uh, called Call and Response. Each week, looking at this sort of unfolding story as God calls to his people and they respond, or occasionally we see the people of God call and God responds. Sometimes even we see uh, the people who don't know God sort of call out and he, and he responds as well. That's what we'll see this morning. If you were with us last week, we were in chapter five and Cody uh, opened up that text and what we saw in chapter five, which he did a, a marvelous job. I was really thankful for his teaching last week. I snuck in. I don't know if you saw me. I, I put on a, a Harley Davidson t-shirt and I sat in the back. So it was nice. I was incognito. No big whoop. Uh, but last week in Exodus chapter five, we see Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and they say, here's what God has demanded. God has said, turn my people loose. And Pharaoh not only resists that call of God, but he, he says, you know, not only am I not going to turn them loose, we're going to increase their work and we're going to take away their resources. And so the people become frustrated and they become uh, bitter and angry. They t- kind of turn on Moses and Aaron. We saw in the text last week that in response to their suffering, the people actually drew nearer to Pharaoh who was oppressing them and said, what can you do for us? As opposed to Moses' response where in light of what was happening, Moses, at the very least, drew near to God and said, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't, you said you were going to deliver the people, but you have not delivered them at all. And now as we move into chapter 6, we're going to see God's response, both to Pharaoh and God's response to Moses in his confusion and frustration. We'll see God responding in essence. I mean, in this series, we've sort of looked at little sections some weeks. We've looked at whole chapters some weeks. Uh, This week, in the next 30 minutes, it's my intention to try and cover uh, Exodus 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. We're going to try and do that whole thing in the next 30 minutes. You ready for that? But in essence, what we see here is the story of the plagues. You've probably heard that before. God sends the 10 plagues upon the people of Egypt in order to, uh, to demonstrate his might, to show his glory to love on his people by leading them out and to remain true to his word. And we're going to see all that unfold this morning. But it's interesting that everything that God does in Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 in some ways is a response to a question that Pharaoh himself asked. If you were with us last week, you saw in Exodus chapter 5 that when Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, this is what the God of Israel says, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. In verse 2 of Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh says this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Interesting. It's actually a very honest response from Pharaoh. He says, listen, here in Egypt, we got all kinds of gods. There's a God for everything. There's a God for the land and the sky and the sea and the the stars. There's a God for life and death and fertility and you name it, we've got a God. But the God you're talking about, I don't know him. So when you say the Lord has come and said, I'm supposed to turn the people go, let me just stop you and say, I don't know who you're talking about. Who is this Lord that I should obey him and turn the people go, turn the people loose? Moreover, I will not obey him because I don't know him. And it's almost like, I mean, if we were doing like a musical of this, this is the moment where after Pharaoh says, who is the Lord, that God would show up in a top hat and a cane and go, well, I'm glad you asked, right? Because what follows, much to the dismay of the Egyptian people and to the dismay of Pharaoh himself is a very clear and concise, a very direct and powerful response to the question, who is God that I should obey him? And that's meaningful. 
Because we live in a world where there are a lot of people asking the same question. You may work with people or live in a neighborhood or even in a family with people who when you tell them you're going to come and worship on a Sunday morning or when you tell them that you believe the Bible is true or when you tell them that you believe God created us for a purpose, they go, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord and what's more, I'm not going to do what he says. We live in a culture that's increasingly asking the question and God is more than capable and willing to answer it because sometimes we get confused in our role and who God is. It's funny, at our house, um, I got four kids, which you know. My youngest son, Will, we, we have some trouble with Will in that he doesn't, um, he doesn't always want to comb his hair or like brush his teeth. I'm sure if you've got little kids, you deal with that same thing. But Will honestly could not care less if his hair is like going every different direction, you know? And so we very gently and lovingly, we try and encourage him to care about his personal appearance. And uh, a couple of years ago, my wife was in the back of the house and I was in the front. She's in the back of the house with Will. It's early in the morning, getting ready for school. And I can hear her saying, Will, you've got to get ready. We don't have any time left. You know, it's only five minutes before we got to leave. You've got to comb your hair. You've got to brush your teeth. You've got to do these things. And he's going, I don't understand why I have to comb my hair. I don't care what my hair looks like. And she's like, well, other people are going to see you. And he's like, I don't care what they think. I just want my hair to be like this. I don't care what it looks like. I don't want to comb it. I don't want to do that. And so they're having this sort of increasingly escalating conversation until I hear this. And this will be familiar to you probably if you have kids. I hear my wife from the back of the house and she goes, Darren, I'm going to need your help back here with Will. And that's my cue, right? You know, that's my, I got to, whatever I'm doing, I got to get up and get back there to help out. But before I have a chance to go back there, she says, Darren, I'm going to need your help back here with Will. And just like this, I hear this littler voice go, dad, I'm going to need your help back here with mom. (laughs) Right? Now we laugh at that because what that implies and what we know immediately is my youngest son, Will, uh, didn't understand the circumstance he was in, right? He didn't understand who he was in relationship to his mother. He didn't understand who his mother was in relationship to me. He clearly had misread my allegiance, right? Uh, So there are all kinds of things about Will's perception of that moment that were off. And there are all kinds of things about Pharaoh's perception of this moment that are off. For Pharaoh to say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? The implication is, I'm the Pharaoh, remember? I can do what I want. I can go where I want and say what I want and do what I want. And these slaves are mine to do with as I please. And I don't know this God. So why should I obey? And God will answer the question. He answers it in the chapters that follow. But first he answers to Moses. And I love the way he does that. Look with me in chapter six, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. So listen, God says, you're going to see what I will do. But listen to how he describes what God himself will do. He says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. It's a really interesting way for God to describe this. He goes, Moses, I know you're discouraged. I know the people are disheartened. They're frustrated because of their suffering. But I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. And what I'm going to do will be displayed in this way. That same Pharaoh, that very same Pharaoh who's saying, I don't know God and I will not obey him. That guy, by his own voice and his own power, by the strength of his own hand, will chase my people out. He'll beg them to leave. And that will be me on display, God says. I'm going to show you what I can do because Pharaoh, this one who's been so resistant, will chase my people out. He says, look what I will do. With a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. God spoke to Moses and said to him in verse 2, I am the Lord. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, that's Yahweh, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, that's an interesting thing for God to say. Because we see in the book of Genesis that the people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did know the name Yahweh. Y-W-H-W, you can pronounce it however you want. They knew that name. They used that name. Now, over time, the people of Israel had forgotten the name, but God had certainly used that title, I am or Yahweh. He'd used that title with the people. What he's saying here is not that they didn't know it, but that they never got to see I am on display. They never got to see the fulfillment of his covenants. They never got to see the fulfillment of his covenantal power. And so what God is saying to Moses is, I know you're discouraged. I know you're wondering what I'm doing here, but listen, I am God Almighty. I am the great I am. And I I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your ancestors, but they never had a chance to see a demonstration of my power, of my sovereignty, of my faithfulness, of my commitment to my own word. They knew the name, but they hadn't seen the display that you're about to see. I'm revealing this to you in a very unique way. He says, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel. And what follows now is God making some promises to the people. He's actually reiterating and repeating previous promises. He's going to say them again. There are seven I will statements that follow, but they basically fall in four categories. Look at what God says. In verse six, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. The first thing that he promises them is deliverance. And he doesn't just say, I'm going to deliver you from the oppression. He says, I'm going to also deliver you from the oppressor. I'm going to take the burden away, but I'm not going to just replace these slave masters with some other slave masters. I'm taking away both the oppression and the oppressor. I will deliver you from both the burden and the slave master. And that's a really beautiful thing. And it's a really significant thing because it is a foreshadowing of the very same promise that is made to all of us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he doesn't just set us free from death, the consequence of sin, but he also sets us free from sin itself. We aren't just set free from the consequence of sin. We are set free from our enslavement. He delivers us in an even greater way than he delivers them from both the oppression and the oppressor. God says, I am the Lord. I remember my covenant. I hear the groaning of my people. First, I will deliver you. Secondly, he says, I will redeem you. Back to chapter, chapter six, verse six. He says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you out from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Redemption, he says, I'll redeem you. This is a, it's kind of a financial word. It's an exchange. It's a payment made in order to reclaim something that was lost. In order to purchase, he says, I will redeem you. I am going to pay your way out of Israel, what? With my power, my outstretched arm, and with judgment. Powerful acts of judgment. Now that judgment was judgment upon Pharaoh, certainly. Judgment upon the wicked people of Egypt, who'd been enslaving the people of, uh, uh, of God, but it's also an act of judgment upon the false gods of Egypt. In fact, we'll see in, in uh, Exodus chapter 12 that in the midst of the Passover, God says, I am, I am passing judgment on the gods, lowercase g, on the false gods of Egypt. God says, I'll redeem you. 
I'll buy you back. You are mine, and I'm going to pay your way out of Egypt. I'm going to redeem you. And that's significant because that also is a foreshadowing of the promise that is made to us in the person of the Lord Jesus in that through his death and his shed blood upon the cross, he redeems us from sin and death. We are redeemed as our sin is placed upon him and he is a Passover lamb. He is a sacrificial lamb for us, his bloodshed on our behalf. God says, I will deliver you. He says, I will redeem you with my power and with my judgment. And he goes one step further still. Look at verse seven of chapter six. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Not only does he promise to deliver and redeem them, but he promises to adopt them. And I want you to see that there's an intimacy here. There's the love of God on display. This isn't just God's justice. It's not just his holiness. He's not just coming in and making things right. It's not that he's just rescuing people because he said he would or that he's getting them out from underneath their slave drivers because slavery is bad or because the Egyptians worship false gods. That's part of it. But a bigger part of it is that God actually loves these people. He wants to be their God and he wants them to know him. There is a sense of his affection for them displayed in the fact that he says, I'm not just going to deliver you. I'm not just going to redeem you, but I'm going to adopt you. You will be mine. I'm bringing you out of Egypt so that I can put my arms around you. And that's significant because it is also a foreshadowing of a promise that's made to each and every one of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That not only does he deliver us from sin and death, not only does he redeem us by his bloodshed on our behalf, but he makes us his sons and his daughters. That he adopts us into his family. It's not just that he cancels the penalty of death or that he rescues us from hell, but he invites us to spend eternity in his presence. And that goes to the last of the promises here. Not only does he say, I will be your God and you will be my people and you will know that I'm the Lord, but look at what he says in verse eight. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Not only does he say, I'm going to deliver you. Not only does he say, I will redeem you. Not only does he say, I'm going to adopt you. But he says, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna keep my word and give you the land that I promised to give your forefathers. I'm gonna fulfill my word by both guiding you into a new place and by giving you that new place, by making you in possession of it. And that's significant because it is also a promise that is made to each and every one of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he doesn't just set us free from sin and death. He doesn't just redeem us by his shed blood. He doesn't just adopt us into his family as sons and daughters. But he gives us the opportunity to have resurrection life. He leads us into the kingdom of God. He leads us into a way in which we are over time being sanctified and conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. God guides us into this place of promise. And he gives it to us as a possession. Those of us who've been saved by the work of Christ on our behalf will spend eternity in the presence of God. Eternity in his presence in heaven. He doesn't just rescue us from sin and death. He doesn't just redeem us from the consequence of sin. He doesn't just adopt us into, our, into his family, but he also gives us by his grace resurrection life, eternal life in his presence. Moses is saying, where are you? You haven't done what you said you're going to do. Pharaoh's going, who is this God? I don't know him and I'm not going to obey him. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I'll do all these things for you. And you would think that the people of Israel would be like, ah, you know, high fives all around. Yeah, God's going to come through. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who can stop us, right? But look at what happens. Look at verse nine. 
After God makes all these incredible promises, Moses spoke thus to the people, verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You know, that even in a service like this, I can say, God wants to deliver you, and God wants to redeem you, and God wants to adopt you, and God wants to bless you and guide you. And there are people in this place that can't hear it because of their broken spirits and their harsh slavery. Because they're so preoccupied and devoured by their own sort of internal struggles, by their own frustration, by the difficulties in their own life, that they, that they can't look up and see who God is and what he will do. God says, I'm going to deliver you. And then he does just that. He does exactly what he says he's going to do. In the chapters that follow, we don't have time to look at them all, but we see the plagues come. The plagues come in direct response to who God says he is. And I want you to see here that this isn't just God acting. God doesn't just act willy-nilly. God acts in response to who he is. Even the promises that he's made, even the promises that he's made to deliver and to redeem and to adopt and to bless, those promises are all rooted in the truth of who he is. He's motivated by his character. Does that make sense? So all throughout this text, as the plagues come, and we, we'll see these plagues, um, in chapter 7 we see water turn to blood, in chapter 8 we see frogs and gnats and swarms of bugs, chapter 9 we see livestock that are made sick by pestilence, chapter 9 we see boils and hail, chapter 10 we see locusts devour the crops, chapter 10 we see darkness, a tangible like felt darkness come over all the people, and in 11 and 12 we see the angel of death coinciding with Passover. In all of these, God is demonstrating, and we see woven through all of it, his purposes. And his purpose, as we see written through this entire section, number one, is that he's motivated by his own glory. God is motivated by a plan to make his name known, to answer the question of Pharaoh, who says, who is God that I should obey him? God says, I'm glad you asked, let me show you. And in each one of these sections, we see it in chapter eight, verses nine and 10, chapter nine, verses 15 and 16, chapter nine, verse 29, chapter 10, verses one and two, chapter 11, verse seven. God keeps saying, what I'm doing, I'm doing that you will know me, that my name will be revered, that I will be feared upon the earth. God does what he does, first and foremost, for his own glory. Exodus chapter nine, let's just look at one of these Exodus chapter 9, um, verse 15 says, For by now, this is God speaking, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. This is a question that many people have asked. Like, why ten plagues? Like, why go through the trouble of all that? The flies and the gnats and the bugs. and the, Why not just kill everybody, right? Why not just, you know, like, do some massive destruction? God says, look, I could have cut you off. By now, I could have just sent pestilence and cut you off from the land, but, look at verse 16, but for this purpose I've raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why does the thing get stretched out? Why does God do what he's doing? To answer Pharaoh's question. To answer the question of the world in which we live that says, who is God that we should care? God says, let me show you who I am. And he stretches this thing out to declare his glory. Not only does he is he motivated by his own glory? He's motivated by love. And you don't want to miss that because God's not a robot, right? God's not some sort of cosmic automaton that's just always pursuing his glory and, and he's, he's not a thinking, feeling person. God is a person and he loves us. I love what it says in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six says to Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God is motivated by his glory, but he's also motivated by his love, by his great affection for his people. And what he does here is an act of love, to rescue them, to redeem them, to adopt them, to bless them. It's a demonstration of his affection that he leads them out by a strong hand. Not only is he motivated by his glory and motivated by his love, but even as it says there in Deuteronomy, he's motivated by his word. It's important to note that when God says a thing, he's gonna do it. When God declares a thing, his holiness and his integrity, his unchangeability, his immutability, he will fulfill what he has said he will do. And so when we look at, um, when we look at Genesis chapter 15, God speaking to Abram all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 15, 13 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God had said 430 years before this, your people will suffer in enslavement, but I will deliver them and they will come out with wealth because of the way I will do it. God is keeping his word. God is fulfilling his promise. It's amazing to me how often I talk to people today who are absolutely paralyzed by fear about what's going on in the world, about what's going on with the environment or what's going on with the political system or what's going on in relationships or what's all this stuff. You talk to people and it's like they can't even move. They don't know what's going to happen. Things are so terrible. There's such moral degradation and there's so much immorality. What's going to happen? Can I tell you? People that are over anxious about the state of the world are people who have not read this book. Because God is victorious. That, <laughs> amen. That, it doesn't mean that we don't have to pay attention to the environment or that we can turn a blind eye to greed and whatever. We do want to be faithful citizens in the world in which God has placed us. But the reality is that there is no need for fear because God has already said, this is how it's going to go. I will redeem all things. I will draw all people to myself, right? God is victorious. And what he does here, the, the deliverance and the redemption, the adoption, the blessing, all of it is motivated by a pursuit of his glory, by his love for his people, and by his commitment and faithfulness to his own word. When we're frustrated with things that God does, understand all of the things that God does are an outworking, they're an outflowing of who he is, first and foremost, right? So f- follow this back with me. If you're frustrated this morning with the way God is working, or maybe you're frustrated with the way God is not working. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we get mad at God because of his inaction. Understand that when you're frustrated with God because of what he's doing, or in your perception what he's not doing, what you're frustrated with are not the actions of God, because the actions of God are just a byproduct of the character of God. When we're frustrated with God and his actions or his lack of action, what we're truly frustrated with is who he is, his character. That's a very scary place to be, by the way. We want to be very cautious about the kind of criticism that we bring to God. Not that we can't ask our questions, but remember that what he does is an outflowing of who he is. And when we look askance at what he's doing, when we second guess what he's doing, we're actually second guessing who he is. God says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. 
and I will deliver, and I will redeem, and I will, uh, I will adopt you, and I will bless you. And God does all these things. The plagues happen, as I said, water to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. You can go back and look at all these, but ultimately it culminates in chapters 11 and 12 with the Passover. And the angel of death, it's exactly what God said would happen. Remember in Exodus chapter four, when we studied that together, that Moses went to Pharaoh and said, the Lord says, you've got my firstborn son, Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. And if you will not turn my firstborn son loose, then I will take your firstborn son. God had told that to Pharaoh a long time before. And remember Pharaoh's response is, who's the Lord? Why should I care? And so as we get to chapters 11 and 12, we see God give a prescription to his people And he says, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt. And what you have to do is you have to find a lamb, a perfect lamb that is appropriate to the size of your family and how many people are in your household. You got to select this lamb with precision. And then you have to sacrifice that lamb. And you take the blood of the lamb and you put it on the door frame, the posts of your door. And when I pass through all of Egypt and I see that blood upon the doorpost, I will pass over. That's where that word comes from, right? I will pass over, but any place where I do not see the blood upon the doorframe, any place that blood is not, then the firstborn will die. The firstborn of every family, the firstborn of every flock, the firstborn of every herd. And in chapters 11 and 12, that's precisely what we see happen. Look with me at Exodus chapter 12, verse 30. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 30, there's a great outcry in Egypt because the firstborn of every herd and flock and family has died. It says this in verse 30, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also, right? So he's maybe starting to get it a little bit. The Egyptians, verse 33, were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they'd asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked Thus they plundered the Egyptians. You know what this sounds a lot like to me? It sounds a lot to me like what God promised Abram in Genesis. You know what it is? It's exactly what God promised to Abram in Genesis. God does everything exactly like he said he would. Can I tell you something we learn from chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, the story of the plagues? One of the main things we want to see here is that what God is going to do is an absolute surety. You can be absolutely certain that God is going to pursue his glory. He's going to be motivated by his love for other people. And he will keep his word. He will keep his word. That's a surety. That's a certainty. The question for you and I is not, is God going to do what he says he's going to do? Is God who he says he is? Is God motivated by the things he's revealed in the scripture? That isn't the question for us. It's not a question of whether or not God will fulfill his promises to deliver and to redeem and to adopt and to provide and bless. God will do those things. The question is not, will he do what he says? And is he who he says he is? The question is, how will you respond to him? And that's really the crux of the whole deal. In this text, we see a couple of different responses. First and foremost, we see that first initial response of the Israelites to God. Remember chapter six, verse nine, that God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And it's this awesome promise. And the people of Israel don't hear it. 
because of their enslavement, their broken spirits and their suffering. I wonder if there are some of you here this morning who are so preoccupied by your own circumstance, by your own frustration, by your own suffering, by your own pain, and it's not that the people weren't enslaved and in pain, they were, but they allowed their circumstances to divert their attention away from the truth of who God is. I wonder if there are some of you here this morning who've become so, you know, belly button focused. You know what I'm talking about? We get into those times in our lives where our head comes down and all we're doing is looking at ourselves. And, and that's indicative of the culture in which we live. We live in a culture that keeps saying, you're the only thing that matters, right? It's all about you. But what that does to us is it feeds this mindset that we just keep looking internally and all we can see is our frustration. People don't treat us very well. We're disregarded. We don't make the money we should make. We don't live in the house we think we should live in. People don't regard us the way we want. And we start to get more and more frustrated and we miss who God is. And if that's you this morning and if you've gotten so internally focused that your eyes have dropped, will you lift up your eyes and lift up your heads and look at who he is and what he's promised? But there's a more dangerous response in the text too. We see in the text again and again and again, we see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And that's been a point of argument and contention for a lot of people. But it makes it very clear in the text that his heart was hardened by God. It says in three different places, God promises and tells Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus chapter four, verse 21 The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. People go, what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says, that God hardens his heart. What God's putting on display here for his glory, the love of his people and his faithfulness to his word is that he hardens the heart of Pharaoh. He hardens the heart of Pharaoh and people go, well, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Listen, it's demonstrating the sovereignty of God. Not only does it say in three places that God will harden his heart, in six places it says that God does harden his heart. That that's exactly what happens. Uh, Exodus chapter nine, verse 12, you don't have to turn there. It says, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. If you go a little bit further, we also see several places in this story where it says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened by the circumstances he's in. So it's not necessarily God's sort of divine hardening, but rather that because of the circumstances he's in, because of the ways he perceives it, his heart becomes hard. That happens in um, Exodus chapter seven, verse 13. It says, uh, in response to uh, what what his magicians had done, it says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he refuses to let the people go. Verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. They replicated falsely the plagues of God. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we see God harden his heart. We see that God said he would harden his heart. We see his heart hardened by circumstances. But what makes the thing even more complicated is that there are at least three places where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart, right? Exodus chapter eight Exodus chapter eight, verse 15 says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Further down in that same chapter, eight, verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So what we see is that God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and that is precisely what happened. But it wasn't just God sort of supernaturally hardening his heart. It was also Pharaoh hardening his own heart. They met in agreement that their heart, that his heart was hardened. 
It was the circumstance and Pharaoh himself and God and his sovereignty hardening his heart. And we have to be on guard against that. We have to be on guard against it and, and not so preoccupied with the whys. You know, people will try and solve this. I, I read one commentator who said, this isn't a puzzle to be solved. It's a mystery to be adored. A mystery to be adored about the way that God's sovereignty works in conjunction with the will of man. That God hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart and they were in agreement, right? His heart was hardened. I wonder if there aren't some of you here this morning whose hearts have become hardened to God. And even as I talk about his deliverance and as I talk about his redemption and his adoption and his blessing, you go, yeah, whatever. I tried that as a kid and it didn't work. I wonder if your hearts have started to atrophy. I mentioned in the last service, uh, just as a a quick illustration, that my heart uh, over time um, has become hardened by uh, the fast food restaurant Wendy's. You know that restaurant? Uh, And I don't mean that I'm like my arteries are clogged. That's probably true too by Wendy's. But um, over the course of the last 20 years, I've gotten to the place where I never go to Wendy's and I don't want to go to Wendy's. And my apologies if you're a... uh, if you're a franchise owner, I'll make this up to you later. But I don't like Wendy's. And I don't, I mean, we can, just for starters, I don't like square hamburgers. I think that's weird, right? <laughs> I think their French fries are too salty. I've been there a couple of times and they charged me more than they were supposed to. I used to go there when I was a kid and they had those really gross baked potatoes back when the world was telling us baked potatoes were healthy for some reason, right? You remember that? And over time, just the way they do business, I, they, they have those drink cups that have that like waxy stuff on them, you know? And if you move your straw around, am I getting into too much detail for you? You move your straw around, that waxy stuff like flakes off and you drink it with your Diet Coke, that's disgusting, right? Now listen, Wendy's doesn't have some sort of supernatural power over me, but over the course of Wendy's just being Wendy's and Darren just being Darren, we realized that we were incompatible. And I was unwilling to move and Wendy's was unwilling to move. And so Wendy's could very accurately say yes, over time, just by being who we are, we hardened Darren McWater's heart, right? And my heart is hardened, I admit it, towards Wendy's. Theologian S.R. Driver rightly observed, the means by which God hardens a man is not necessarily by any extraordinary intervention on his part. It may be the ordinary experiences of life operating through the principles and character of human, human nature which he appointed. The ordinary experiences of life operating through the principles and character of human nature which he appointed. I wonder if you're here this morning if there are places in which your heart has become hardened to the truth of who God is. And people kind of freak out about this, right? And they go, well, oh no, like what's gonna happen? What if God hardens my heart? What if I've been destined for wrath, you know? And I don't wanna, I wanna worship him. I love Jesus, but I'm afraid he might be. A- Listen, there is no place in this story or any other passage in scripture where there's somebody going, I really wanna worship God, but he won't let me, right? I really wanna surrender to him. I really wanna serve him and obey him, but he won't let me because he decided I'm just supposed to be punished, right? There's not, a, there's not a place where people are crying out for God's forgiveness and his grace that he doesn't extend it. No, the hardness here is both the work of God and his sovereignty and the work of Pharaoh who was hardened towards God. If you're here this morning and you feel a sense of, I don't want to be hardened towards God, that's a great first step in repenting and turning. And it brings me to the, the last and third response. We're almost out of time this morning. But the third response we see here is the response from the people of God who when God comes to them in chapters 11 and 12 and says, listen, I'm about to do a thing to show my glory and you have to take a lamb and you have to sacrifice it 
and you have to take the blood and put it upon the, the beams and the post of your door. And when I see the blood, by the way, there's an important distinction here. God does not say, when I see my people, and he knew how to distinguish because some of the plagues only affect the Egyptians. He doesn't say when I pass through and I see my people or when I see you looking religious or when I see people who've memorized enough Bible verses or when I see people who sort of have gone through the motions or wearing the right clothes. God says nothing about seeing them. He says when I pass through and I see the blood. The blood is the thing that makes the difference. It's the thing that God the Father is looking for. When the angel passes through and he sees the blood on the doorpost, that is indicative of people who have believed and responded in obedience. And a sacrifice has been made. Listen, in every home, in every household, in all of Egypt, somebody died. Either the firstborn of every family and flock and herd or a sacrificial lamb. And in the places where a sacrificial lamb died, the firstborn was spared. There is absolutely a consequence to sin, my friends. And the consequence to sin is death. And the only way for the remission of sin to occur is for the shedding of blood. But as we said in our opening section, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to this earth to deliver us and to redeem us through the shedding of his blood. He takes our sin upon himself. He dies on the cross not only to pay that penalty, but then to extend to us adoption and resurrection life, to bless us and guide us and fulfill the promise that he's made. And your heart doesn't have to be hardened. You don't have to become atrophied and calloused. You don't have to become so inwardly focused that you can't be in awe of the great I am. You can instead understand who he is. Lift up your eyes. See him. Believe and obey. And you will be spared. Spared from the consequence of sin. Set free from sin and death. And adopted into the family of God. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You and I aren't redeemed with gold and silver. We can be redeemed by the shed blood of Christ, God's spotless lamb on our behalf. And if you haven't trusted in him, this third response is the best response. Not that your heart would be hardened, not that you would be ignoring God because of your own selfish situation, but rather that you would hear him and obey him, that you would believe. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? In the quietness of this moment, I would want you to look into your own life and ask yourself the most important question that a man or a woman ever asks himself, and it's this. Have I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem me, to deliver me, to adopt me and to bless me? Or am I still dead in my sin? You know, ultimately, every man, woman, and child that has ever lived is gonna answer Pharaoh's question. And they're gonna answer Pharaoh's question correctly. Pharaoh says, who is God? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? But Philippians 2 says, there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you're not here this morning, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you in the quietness of this moment to do that right where you sit. To just call out to God right where you are and say, Jesus, will you save me from sin and death? Redeem me. Adopt me. Deliver me, bless me with resurrection life, 
Because you are God and there is no other. I see you. I see my need for you. I know who you are and I know why I should obey you. Would you just call out to him right here in the quietness of this moment? There may be others of you in the room this morning who've maybe found that your heart has started to harden because of who you are, because of who God is, because of your circumstance, your situation. You feel that atrophy starting to set in. And I'm here to tell you this morning, do not let that take its course. Repent of that. It says in the scripture that we can call out to God to turn up our fallow ground and to prepare our hearts to receive the implanted seed of the word of God. Will you cry out to God in the quietness of this moment and say, will you churn up the fallow ground in my heart? Will you break up that hardness? Give me a spiritual bypass or whatever it takes. Can we just sit here for a moment? Call out to God. Respond to him before we sing his praise further in a moment.